Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury, and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. Today we sit down to discuss with Dr Annalie Stodds, MP. Annalie Stodds is the Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, and also did her PhD at the LSE. We sit down to chat through the policy response to COVID-19 as is, what she thinks needs to be done, and how we could build more resilience into the system, as well as having a look at how left-wing policies are faring internationally or in the context of British history. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so um, Annalise Dodds, thank you very much for joining us today. And first off, how are you adjusting to life under lockdown? Oh, it's a, a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I mean, I, I think I really do feel like one of the lucky ones. Um, you, you know, I, I don't live in overcrowded accommodation. I don't have to cope with um, complicated shifts and, and no childcare. So many people do currently who are still needing to go into work. Um, so, yeah, I think my circumstances compared to those of others are, um, you know, very much more comfortable. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, to set the context, you're the Shadow Chancellor. What does that involve? What do you want to achieve in that position? What, what does your day-to-day look like when performing that position? Right. So that's quite a big question, really. Um, I mean, uh, I suppose maybe if I take the, the second part of your question first. So, um, you know, obviously I, I, I'm still a constituency MP, so I need to perform that function for my constituents along with my staff. Um, but then, uh, obviously, having been appointed as the, the Shadow Chancellor, I need to um, make sure, you know, first of all, that particularly in this difficult time that, that my party, the Labour Party, is putting forward constructive solutions when we, we see problems with the, the current approach from government. Um, so we've been trying to do that across a range of different areas. And, you know, there are aspects where... Unfortunately, the UK is significantly behind other countries um, in its economic response. So, you know, really trying to encourage action as, as much as possible. Um, and then secondly, I suppose there, there's the, um, the kind of reactive work that an opposition has to do around legislation that's being put forward, um, you know, making sure that that's given the, the scrutiny that it deserves. Um, making sure that people's concerns are articulated in, in Parliament. So, um, yeah, certainly a, a huge amount of work to be done, really. You know, obviously, we're, um, as everybody will be aware, uh, very unfortunately, we're in the middle of the biggest recession in you know a number of hundreds of years. Um, so we, we really do need to make sure that those actions are appropriately targeted and are, are at the right scale to deal with that enormous challenge. And when dealing with that enormous challenge, how do you find that your career in academia beforehand um, helped you do this? What type of analytical toolkits or, or, or thoughts or way of dealing with things do you find academia provided? Yeah, I mean, I, I've found, um, I suppose, my, my previous years in an academic role to be to be very helpful in this context. I mean, clearly, um, it's necessary to be able to assimilate like, large amounts of information, to assess statistics, to um, maybe understand sometimes the um, the perspectives that might be driving particular interpretations of those statistics and findings. Um, but then at the same time, I would say that I, I don't think those skills um, can only arise through an academic background. You know, I often say it and, it, and it's absolutely true. I've often found from uh, people who've been 
for example, trade union negotiators that, that you know, they're very um, disciplined at putting forward arguments and being absolutely clear at, you know, wh where the pressure points are and what, what the real focus and priority needs to be. So I think that, and obviously people from the world of business as well. So I think that, you know, these skills can be developed through various different routes, really. Um, uh, yeah, and I, th I think they are very, very important. Okay, so looking at COVID-19 and everything that's happened, so the first kind of vague principled question of what do you see as being the key to being a successful opposition in times of national crisis? There's a line to walk between providing scrutiny and seeming overly hostile, and then especially like maintaining, maintaining the image of that in the eyes of the media. So how do you feel that's best achieved? And what is the most value that, like, what's the function, the value that an opposition can provide more than merely trying to get into government four years down the line? Yeah, well, I, I think the overriding priority has to be to get our country into a better place, you know, both in terms of our health outcomes and our economic outcomes. And that's absolutely what I'm focused on. Um, clearly, as I mentioned, you know, I do have concerns about the fact that, I mean, you know, we saw with that OECD report um, last week that actually the, the hit to the UK's economy from coronavirus looks to be the worst out of all developed nations. Now, that's extremely concerning. Um, uh, and obviously, the, the health impact has been one of the worst in developed nations as well. So we need to get to a better place. It's absolutely critical. And that means as an opposition, you know, where there are solutions to the many problems that we're facing really trying to encourage government as quickly as possible to adopt those solutions you know and and really this is something that's well beyond party politics i mean it's really about us trying to somehow get to a better situation um so that that's absolutely been the focus um uh, certainly for me and i know for the rest of the labor team currently getting us to a better place in the uk why do you feel it is that, um, as you reference the OECD report, doesn't look promising for the UK? I mean, how much? There's two halves to this, right? Like on one hand, it's kind of the weak fundamentals before the before coronavirus hit, and on the other hand, it's been the subpar dealing with coronavirus itself. So, so looking at those two things, like why is it you think that the UK is what third worst in the world currently? I mean, I, I think. We need to perhaps look at both the the issues that have have caused problems for our health response and also those that have caused problems for our economic response. Um, we found generally that capacity to deal with some of the big challenges has been lacking. So, you know, I think in terms of the healthcare workers and social care workers, I mean, they, they've done an absolutely amazing job. It's been astonishing to see how hard people have worked. There have been incredible um, uh, measures undertaken by our National Health Service, you know, the building of that Nightingale Hospital, et cetera, the other facilities, you know, it's really been remarkable. People working, you know, through nights, through weekends, desperately trying to improve the situation. But the, the capacity hasn't been there to match their efforts. That's been one of the really critical issues. And, you know, we see this still, especially around, um, I think, one of the, the most important components for us to climb out of this crisis economically, actually, as well as in health terms, the test track and isolate system, where, um, you know, we had a, a version of that initially uh, switched off in March. We've had to kind of create it again 
reached for different ways of doing that, not necessarily learning from other countries in doing so. And, you know, there have been parts of the like UK's kind of machinery that would have helped to do that, you know, particularly local authorities. They've been brought in finally, but it's taken a long time for that system to get sorted out. So I think those capacity issues have been a, a major problem for us. And we've got to learn from that for the future. You know, the lack of resilience has been an enormous problem, I think. And then that is impacting, obviously, on the economic response. Um, I think one of the the biggest issues here is about the the importance, I mean, it's an obvious point, but the importance of demand in ensuring our economic health into the future. I mean, if people don't feel safe entering businesses, they're not going to be clicking back into their previous consumption patterns, you know, especially when it's often those who are older, um, people who are retired, who might often be spending in exactly some of those industries that are under the most economic pressure. If we don't have the conditions there for people to feel safe, then I think, you know, we'll continue to see that reduction in demand. You know, people are tightening their belts, they're saving where they can, obviously a lot of people can't, but they're saving where they can because they don't have that confidence currently. Um, So we do need to have more forceful approach around this, you know, more more clarity around the guidelines, much more attention being paid to that. Obviously, it's something business is asking for as well as, um, you know, consumers. Uh, but then we also need to be learning from other countries around confidence building measures, you know, obviously quite far behind other countries around whatever stimulus might come. So that's another issue where we need to catch up quickly. It's really interesting hearing you um, say that we need to develop this like resilience and robustness because in earlier episodes, chatting with Lord Mervyn King and Lord Adair Turner, both of whom were in charge of um, redeveloping the financial sector after 2008, where the financial sector just blew up. Um, they looked back at that time, looked at highlight of the current crisis, and both of them independently said, look, maybe we need to be focusing a lot less on squeezing profit margins by dropping costs as much as possible, but instead building resilience by by just having spare capacity in the system. Um, So it's interesting to hear you talk about how this could be dealt with from the government perspective when you talk about like the machinery of government. So how do you think that machinery of government could be better used? For example, you touched on local authorities there. So I, I think it's both about capacity where, you know, clearly in some areas, the UK did lack that in other, uh, available in other countries, you know, for example, around testing. But, you know, a big, big part of this is also around coordination and accountability for that coordination as well, because, you know, we, we took quite a long time. I remember talking to um, some of the scientists in, involved in this. You know, there is a lot of, for example, private laboratory capacity that has now been brought into the system um, which you know many people were urging for really quite a long time should be used they, they wanted to open their facilities but but that wasn't taken on board for quite a long time so I think that those issues about accountability you know when um, did different actors in in government you know when were they able to decide right we're going to sort this problem out I mean another area of which obviously we've been really trying to um, to push for solutions is around the situation in social care and particularly care homes where you now I had local care home providers contacting me and I know a number of my colleagues had this as well that they, they just couldn't get a straight answer around whose responsibility it was to give them testing now it was it appears partly driven that confusion by just a lack of capacity but if there'd been 
openness, you know, and, and for example, central government saying, well, yes, we, we appreciate it. we don't have the capacity yet. Here's why. Um, we're going to try and deliver it by this time. You know, if we don't, then here's the strategy we'll use to build up that capacity. I think, you know, we would have got to a much better place. As it was, the responsibility was kind of knocked about amongst different actors who, who couldn't deliver. So I think, yes, it's capacity, but it's also about accountability, you know, taking responsibility when different parts of the response are not working and getting them sorted out. And it's it's amazing the scale of the response. I mean, I think it's it currently the government's paying, is it a quarter of all people's wages or is it over a fifth? But it's a, it's a mind-blowing amount, especially for a government under George Osborne, what, six years ago? We're kind of talking about the value of austerity. So if before this we had the, the decade of austerity, and then now because of COVID, you have Boris Johnson referring to, his, to it as the A word that he won't say, um, how will this change the political landscape? Um, Gordon Gordon Brown got um, criticised heavily after the 2008 financial crisis for kind of profligate spending of money. Will the Conservatives gain that perspective, gain that label, or like how how does this shift things around? Yeah, well, of course, um, a lot of that criticism was very much ill-founded because in, in practice, you know, Brown had done a huge amount to protect the UK economy and, you know, create international agreement around stabilisation uh, measures. So, um, I, I, and what happened after that, I think we must guard against now. You know, we saw approaches being taken which really diminished potential demand for quite a long time, you know, as, as people listening to this podcast will know, we've seen very, very slow increase in living standards in the UK. I think it's been the longest squeeze on uh, on wages, uh, overall average income since Napoleonic times, you know, eight generations. So um, that is not the approach that we need to see now. Um, but I would again say it's, it's not just about the, the kind of quantum of, um, you, you know, a financial firepower by government. It's also whether it's appropriately targeted um, and whether there's a, a strategy behind those mechanisms. So, you know, if you look at furlough, for example, um, you know, Labour Party strongly supported the creation of some kind of salary backfill scheme. You know, we're uh, advocating for that for some time, seeing what was occurring in other countries in their short working schemes. Um, the really big question now is how those schemes can be adapted to the current reality. So we've seen the same approach being adopted across all sectors, obviously, you know, a, a gradual removal of, of the furlough scheme, same with the, the self-employed scheme. Well, actually expecting an employer contribution in the case of furlough from uh, you know, say a, a, a pub owner or, you know, um, a, somebody who works in personal services, um, you know, th this is really not going to work when there's no cash flow there and there's no alternative to enable those businesses to keep functioning. You know, many of them are already pretty highly indebted, having used some of the government loan schemes, etc. Um, so there's a big question now about what government does strategically to protect those very hard hit parts of the economy. Um, and you know, this isn't easy for government, it involves difficult choices. You know, if they're going to take a more sectoral approach, which we think they should, there will be issues about the boundaries of different sectors. I appreciate that, but just because it's politically a bit difficult, it doesn't mean that a more strategic approach shouldn't be taken. Okay, so so if it's the case then that the Conservatives are shifting leftwards economically to, to give out all of this money, um, 
Is it the way that Labour and the Conservatives differentiate themselves? Is this just debate that you mentioned about like how does it get implemented? Is that the dividing line, or do you think that it needs? To, uh, yeah. So is the dividing line how does this get implemented, and then how would that be necessary for Labour to kind of take the divisive steps it needs to kind of reclaim the red wall, like the northern seats it lost? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a lot in that question. I mean, I, I think one of our major concerns currently is the slowness of action around issues that will be um, very relevant in different regions of the UK. So, um, you know, as of today, for example, we, we don't seem to yet have any scheme in the UK or schemes because there will need to be different ones to help those who've become unemployed, you know, all of the staff who would have been helping with employment activation are totally consumed with processing claims for social security. We need now to have those systems being set up. Um, and we need now to have a discussion about, you know, what will be done to encourage employers to, to retain employees, what will be done to um, encourage young people in particular to stay in education and training. We know that's effective as a way of keeping people out of the pool of um, unemployed people. You know, that action is not happening currently. You know, again, we're kind of behind other countries on that. So, th so there are big issues about, about slowness, about kind of recognising the scale of the challenge and taking the necessary action now to reduce future economic impact, which will be more severe if that action isn't taken. So I think that's critically important. But I would say at the same time, um, you know, we are seeing a very, very unequal impact from this crisis. So um, inequalities that already existed are being compounded by what's occurring. Um, you know, we see that across the board. You know, women um, far more likely uh, to be falling out of employment now, far more likely to be having to cope with childcare because of what's going on with, with the schools, um, uh, far more likely to be seeing a reduction in hours occurring as well. Um, black and minority ethnic workers, we know there's a, 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 a differentiated health impact from coronavirus on uh, those workers already, um, but also seeing the impact on them in terms of unemployment being a very concentrated one. And then there's the regional um, uh, differences as well that are occurring. Um, so, you know, these, these um, I suppose what we say is we, the, the support needs to reflect the fact that, you know, there's some people, you know, we know, for example, some people in the UK are, have been able to save quite a bit more. Um, now, uh, there are very many others for whom really this crisis is causing an incredibly difficult financial situation. And we'd certainly be saying to government, look, you need to be looking much more at the, you know, that category of people because they're, they're enormous in number now. Um, and then how will this ever be paid back? Yeah, well, I mean, there's obviously a, a, a major discussion going on around that question right now. Um, there are some who um, quite rightly point to the fact that there are very low interest rates currently. You know, if government takes the right decisions and, you know, obviously we're urging them to take the right decisions as quickly as possible, then we should hopefully see um, growth in the UK economy coming back, you know, re return to an extent to um, uh, tax revenues. Obviously, they've dropped precipitously recently. Um, that would erode um, the cost of that debt over time. But we've got to also be aware that those kinds of conditions may not persist into the future forever. We have to be conscious of that. Um, you know, we've had some suggestions from government that we uh, might be, you know, the kind of leaked report in 
uh, one of the newspapers that we might be seeing um, some increases in taxation across the board. Actually, we would say, again, let's learn from what's happened after previous crises. You know, if we see those who are already on lower medium incomes uh, being affected by additional tax rises or by cuts to services, you know, pay freezes, etc. Um, actually, that's not a sustainable way to deal with um, some of these debts in a context of very low demand. You know, that will have a negative impact on demand. Instead, those who have the broadest shoulders um, should be looked to when contributions are necessary. And you know, I think that's going with the grain of public opinion, including amongst those with those broader shoulders. You know, we've been through a huge mass sacrifice really around this crisis um, we need to be reflecting that and how we then deal with any resultant debt so to look at these big difficult economic questions just in the in the question of like media spin some of the like best things that have been brought in for the economy stuff like an independent central bank minimum wage i mean national health service if you want to go that far back or all labor policies that at the time the, the, the government decried as surely ruining the country um, that being said, some of Labour's policies were just too radical. Things like free, but well, the 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 most recent manifesto having the shopping list of policies to the point that people point at free broadbands or high taxation, nationalisation. I mean, if you really want to go back, like devaluation post post World War. So, why do you think it is that the good things Labour have done, the minimum wage, the independent Bank of England, or maybe just economists think that independent Bank of England is the one that should be remembered, but the, the good things like minimum wage, um, why do you think that they're obscured by these controversial things, just historically uh, amongst Labour's history? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think actually around you know, some of the measures that you mentioned, that, that there is very, very strong public support. And we're seeing that being compounded due to current developments. So, um, you know, I think people's genuine pride in a National Health Service, for example, has become much more intense, understandably, because they've seen, you know, how hard the doctors, nurses, healthcare assistants of porters, everybody else has been working. So I think that you know, this, this crisis it, it is leading to really a, a, a kind of an interesting conversation about how we want, you know, our society to work into the future. Now, you know, so many people are desperate for a return to how things were before, and I can understand that. You know, we all really want to get back to normality, but, you know, those kinds of issues which labour policies have been focused at dealing with, but, you know, we haven't always communicated them very well as a party. So, you know, we haven't, um, you know, they haven't necessarily uh, been supported as Labour policies. But, you know, I, th I think they they are focused on some of those really critical questions. I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of free broadband. I mean, the problem that that policy was, was focused on is one which, you know, we're all seeing in spades at the moment, right? You know, obviously uh, for people, not just for people who, who have to work at home, but above all for the kids as well, where there's such an appalling digital divide, which, which hasn't been breached in many cases and all the inequalities that will throw up. So um, I think we, we are seeing, you know, a, a, an interesting conversation going on now, um, but we need to make sure that we build on that and get our country to a stronger situation on, on many of these dimensions for the future. Why is it you think Labour loses on the spin historically? Like you said earlier that you thought that Gordon Brown's policies were correct for the time. I mean, when we when we had Alistair Darling on, he obviously agreed with that. 
why was it that going into the 2010 election, the, the kind of the media battle, the, the spin was lost? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I wonder whether sometimes there's a, a maybe a kind of dispositional um, kind of culture-based difference sometimes, you know, between, between people on the kind of progressive side of politics, left and centre, you know, compared to those who are on the right. Um, you know, sometimes a desire to have a very, you know, evidence-based, fact-based approach, um, whereas, you know, sometimes the right um, focuses more on people's emotions and using those kinds of language um, and uh, kind of speaking more in sound bites, for example. Um, you know, I don't know whether that's... Take back control. <laughs> yeah, so, well, 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 exactly. And that, in fact, that, pr that phrase um, had been kind of road-tested by that campaign for many, many, many years um, before it was then uh, used. Um, and, you know, positions that sometimes those on the, the kind of left and centre would say are, um, are common sense, uh, you know, it's not, it's not good enough just to think that, you know, we, we need to make sure that, um, uh, that, that we have that open conversation with the public and, and that we have the communication right, really. I mean, but if you look at the Western world, take the kind of major countries with populations more than about 20 million, there's not one major social democratic or socialist government. I mean, the nearest you could say were Trudeau or Macron, but I think both of them would identify as kind of central ground liberals, less than, um, or as much as social democrats. So, so, so why do you think it is the case that left-wing parties are on the decline globally, especially in the aftermath of the financial crisis, where you saw back in the Great Depression, this was a real heyday for people at FDR? I mean, let, let's not forget about um, uh, what's happened in Spain and New Zealand, and you know there there are still some some bright spots, I would say, um, and also of course a municipal government as well, where we often see quite a different um, uh, situation. Um, I think we we should never underestimate the fact that I, I remember um, talking to Martin Schultz about this actually, um, uh, kind of. Uh, around the time of the referendum in the UK that, you know, clearly when there is an economic recession, um, that breeds such a fear of, of insecurity amongst people and a reality of insecurity. Um, and, you know, particularly in countries like the UK, we've seen such a long squeeze on people's living standards um, that, that there's that yearning for security. And I think, you know, quite often um, kind of social democratic parties haven't been clear enough that we want that security too. We, we really want it and actually we have stronger plans to deliver it, but we haven't always put that value front and center of what we're arguing for. Um, so yeah, certainly that's something that, that I've kind of, you know, learned about over the last few years. And I think it's very important that we make it a, a stronger part of, you know, how we're presenting ourselves as political parties. So if that's the international angle, um, to look at the historical angle, the Labour Party's instance creation has spent a lot more time in opposition than in government. I mean, wh why do you think that is? Like, wh what have the Tories done right? What has Labour not? Goodness, that's an enormous question. Um, yeah, it's a PhD right there, right? I apologise. <laughs> yeah, actually some have been written on it in some really interesting books. I mean, um, I, th I think there are there are different dynamics at different times. Um, I think also uh, 
very often, you know, as I was talking about before, I think, uh, you, you know, people on the, the social democratic side, um, the socialist side, you know, we, we love having those internal debates. Um, you know, we need to really uh, make sure that, that you, you know, we're actually communicating directly with people who don't um, always agree with us naturally. Uh, you know, that I think is always a challenge and it's one that's particularly critical right now for the UK Labour Party. Um, but when we can have those conversations and we, you know, we can kind of build build trust, you know, Labour, I think, has done very well. And, you know, obviously we've got those historic examples um, where, you know, Labour parties have made you know, very ma major positive changes for the country. So it, it can be done. It's interesting because um, I was chatting to Emily Lau, uh, who is the, the former leader of Hong Kong's largest pro-democracy party. And one thing she kind of pointed out as interesting is that there's one establishment party, but there's quite a lot of um, pro-democracy parties. And then even then various fringe groups and splinter movements, because some are pro-independence, some are pro-two-country, one systems. And it, it, like no matter what it is, right, whether it's the British left with the Liberals and Labour, or whether it's in Hong Kong, you do generically see it. So, so one thing that people like Tony Blair, Andrew Adonis have spoke of recently is the necessity to kind of brought, bring together the liberal tradition of um, the, the liberal tradition of Lloyd George with like the Bevan Bavan Attlee tradition of the Labour Party. So what do you see the kind of future for those two parties with cooperation or with working together to kind of combat the narrative you see from the other side? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that 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 spirit of working together in the national interest is something that, that can just apply as it were between kind of Labour and the Liberal Democrats. You know, I think to be fair to the Labour Party, we've tried to do that. You know, we're trying to do that now, even as an opposition, but as a constructive opposition, you know, trying to um, get the Conservative government to consider those solutions that it needs to put into place. And, you know, obviously we have a SNP government in Scotland as well, and, you know, trying to make sure that on critical questions that, you know, that we can push in, in the right direction. Um, and obviously that applies as, as well, I would say, with, uh, with the Green Party, you know, also where, you know, clearly Labour has a very strong environmental um, focus, trying to make sure that, that that work is done, you know, ultimately the biggest existential crisis for, for the world with, with the climate crisis, um, uh, you know, even bigger than the one that we're facing right now. Um, so I think, I think that collaboration is important. I would say that actually, you know, our electoral system does mean that uh, the approach taken by political parties in the UK is going to be very different to that in other contexts, you know, where there is much more fragmentation. Um, actually, in practice, uh, you know, I, I think, I mean, I, obviously there's a debate within the Labour Party on this as on so many other issues. I mean, I, I certainly find the direct accountability and responsibility that's provided through the constituency link to be very, very important. And I think that's, a, to, to me, that's a real strength of the UK um, political system and, and the direct connection that it gives um, constituents. But, you know, I appreciate that's that's when it works. You know, you don't have every single MP being always accountable um, to their uh, constituents aside from at the ballot box. Clearly, that's the, the ultimate sanction. Important, important in what sense? How What value do you see it adding? Well, ultimately, um, it means that, you know, members of parliament 
have to listen to what their constituents are saying. And if they don't, then there will be consequences. Um, you know, I, I obviously live in my constituency. You know, when I walk down the road, um, very, very frequently people will want to speak to me on different issues and, um, you know, very frequently contact me about different matters. Uh, that's not always the case in lots of other countries where they have much, much more proportional systems. I mean, I'm not saying that some kind of proportionality might not be a useful corrective, but I think keeping that constituency link to me is, is a very, very important thing because of that direct accountability. You know, people can look into the whites of my eyes um, and, you know, have that direct conversation with me. Um, and, you know, I've, I find it to be very, very helpful as a parliamentarian, you know, because I've talked to people in different situations, sometimes very, very difficult situations, so that I can understand whether government policies are working or aren't working. And again, I'm not sure that's always occurring in, in other contexts where there isn't that direct constituency link. So um, to discuss the specific policy making you mentioned, one thing that we've discussed with everyone this season has been this quote by an American economist, Greg Mankiw, who worked as the chair of economic advisors under George Bush. What he said was, quote, this was in 2006, he said, quote, the sad truth is that macroeconomic research in the past three decades has only had a minor impact on the practical analysis of fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, so John McDonnell, your predecessor, kind of briefly formed this economic advisory committee where um, really cool lefty economists like Stiglitz and Piketty kind of came in and had these, well, uh, ostensibly came in and had these policy discussion conversations. So how true is that Mankiw quote of policy creation in the Labour Party? Um, I don't think it is completely true, actually. Um, certainly, you know, I, I have a lot of interaction with um, academics across a, a range of fields, obviously, particularly economics, but in other areas as well. Um, I find that to be enormously helpful. Uh, actually, I often find the, the informal contact is just as helpful as something more formalised. You know, sometimes if you have a, a formalised council, then that can kind of you know, develop its own bureaucracy and become a bit sclerotic. And then it's about the relationships between people on the council, you know, all this kind of stuff. Whereas um, just having that that direct relationship, I found to be very, very useful. Um, I mean, just one example, uh, I guess, recently has been around, um, you know, the kind of overall approach to, to stimulus, to um, uh, to, to, to dealing with unemployment um, and its costs, et cetera, and the different kinds of modelling that are necessary around that and the impact of interventions. And, you know, I've had really valuable um, communication with a number of uh, academics around that. Very, very helpful indeed. So, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be as perhaps as, uh, not necessarily negative, but I think that there's a lot that happens behind the scenes that might not always be visible to outside observers. Um, and, you know, certainly, I mean, I, I'm as well, as well as being a Labour and Cooperative Party MP, I'm also a Fabian. And, you know, that kind of Fabian tradition of close links with, um, with experts, ultimately, you know, with, with those who understand the world and what can be done to change it is, is really important to me. Yeah, I mean, it was the um, Fabians who founded LSE, so I suppose I have to be grateful there. <laughs> um, one thing that, again, that people have talked about a lot recently is, is how the crisis itself can be used as this like mechanism, this jumping off point to, to lead to more radical change. So again, Adair Turner was saying that we need, to, we need two things. We need firstly to fight off the climate crisis. We need also um, to provide some kind of aggregate demand stimulus after this. 
And he said, well, great, right? Because what we need is cladding put in houses. This is just a difficult technical skilled job. And doing this involves sending lots of workmen around to lots of houses. There's a great fiscal multiplier because there's no import, like loss, stuff like that. So if, if he sees this as being a great way to kind of like deal with the financial crisis, sorry, deal with the climate crisis, what, what do you see as the kind of like things that have always been on the back burner or on the to-do list, which you feel now can enter into the agenda because of this just truly bizarre situation we found ourselves in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we really do need to be looking into how different forms of investment can have multiple positive outcomes. Um, I mean, the, the case that you mentioned there is, is a very good one. Um, I think actually there are a number of areas where it will be possible to increase labour intensity in a way that's you know building value that's value for money and that's also building essentially our capacity because it's upskilling people who wouldn't necessarily have had that you know, expertise otherwise. Um, so I think we really do need a focus on that. We need to learn from other countries around this. Um, you know, a number of the different stimulus packages that have already been announced have had a focus on some of these aspects. I think that's important. Um, but I think we, we also need to have a, a broad focus. Um, you know, to me, looking at the UK economy, even before this crisis started, one of the, the biggest challenges that we had was around our really slow productivity growth and, you know, big regional disparities, but big, big disparities between industries as well. You know, you look at farm, pharmaceuticals, for example, actually productivity in the UK is very, very strong in pharmaceuticals, um, but other areas where, you know, there, there have been kind of long-term issues around a lack of innovation, um, you know, lack of um, upskilling, etc. Uh, so, you know, the, those kinds of industries are not always the ones that politicians are excited about because they don't get to kind of wear a hard hat and, you know, parade around and see the people doing the, the cladding, etc. But, you know, areas like um, social care, you know, clearly a, a strong focus now, it's an industry, or if we want to call it that, or a service, um, where we're going to have increasing need into the future because thank goodness people are living longer um but where we really haven't seen the kind of focus on you know developing skills progression making care really a career that that people you know they should be proud of it because it's an inc incredibly important job and when it's done well it makes you know a massive difference to people um and there are many things that could be done actually to you know make those careers more rewarding ultimately make the system more productive as well because the out outcomes and outputs would be better um, all around. So uh, uh, yes, I agree with, with, with what was suggested there, but um, let's not take too narrow a view of industrial policy, I suppose. You know, the, 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 there's, a, there's a broader productivity challenge there that we need to face up to. How do you, could you just give me a shopping list of policies? How do you deal with the kind of regional, regional issues, the productivity challenge? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose um, I might cheekily uh, resist um, providing the, the same shopping list across the whole of the UK, because I think, you know, at the core of this has to be um, a more genuinely decentralised approach, right? And um, I mean, we're obviously encouraging government as much as possible to please adopt that approach and listen to what local actors are saying around the, the unemployment challenge because you know the kinds of um, uh, measures that, that will be necessary in um, you know some context you know if you look at a place like Crawley for example very very large numbers of people 
who are furloughed, but actually traditionally relatively low unemployment. Compare that to um, some of our coastal communities where um, not that many people furloughed because unfortunately they'd already been laid off you know, at the beginning of the crisis and they already have historically relatively high levels of unemployment. You, know, you need, need a tailored solution, um, one that's, that's going with the grain of what local actors are already arguing for. At the core of that, again, this goes back to that issue about accountability and joining up and coordination. You know, you need to have actors which are able to do that. So um, that includes a lot of the time local authorities being appropriately resourced so that they can they can rise to that challenge. You know, under a lot of fiscal pressure now. Um, so I think that's that's very very important. But I think then also. Again, we need to have a, a, a broader view about the, the kind of conditions for sustainable growth and improvements in living standards. Um, you know, some suggestions coming from government that we might see some infrastructure investments coming through. Obviously, that would be welcome. You know, we've had comparatively low levels of um, public investment growth in, in the UK over recent years. You know, same with private investment growth. So hopefully it can crowd in a bit more private investment growth as well. But... Um, if we just focus on, um, you know, for example, some new railway lines, and obviously they would be massively welcome, but if people living in those areas can't actually afford to take the train anyway, and it would have been more useful for them to be able to you know, have some bus services restored that could actually get them to where the jobs are, it's not going to have that positive impact. So we need to be, I think, not, not just focusing on the kind of eye-catching, media-friendly uh, bits of hard infrastructure, but really, what are the conditions that are needed to help people to, uh, you, you know, to make, make use of their ambitions and their their desire for um, uh, for, for career progression and, and whatnot? To wrap up this conversation of economics and politics, um, with one on kind of the role of feminism within that, there's never previously been a female shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, and nor indeed a, a female chancellor. So why is it you think that alone of the great offices of state has never had a female occupant? That's a really interesting question. Um, I, and I have found quite often when I've been in the House of Commons that, um, well, certainly on the other side, sorry, this sounds like a very partisan point. I don't mean it to, but quite often, they, you know, there'd be very few, but, you know, maybe one or two, but that that's kind of it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's clearly a, a, a kind of occupational um, issue there. And you know, we see that in financial services, for example, and particularly around representation at the the, the kind of higher echelons and you know a lot of work's gone on into investigating why that's the case and why there are those barriers on progress um but i think also there's there's not always um th that kind of recognition uh, that um the, the kinds of matters that you know that are discussed um around you know whether we're talking about kind of decisions made by the bank of england or uh, within budgets etc they very obviously have a a clear and direct impact on people's lives and so often it will be you know women in families who will have to deal with that impact um so you know I, I hope that we're we're getting to a better place you know I've, I've always worked closely with groups like the women's budget group which have you know, taken a, a very well evidenced approach over many many years kind of uh, pointing out the the impact of different policies on women um so you know maybe maybe we're about to see a a change in this area. I hope that we will be. <laughs> yeah, something where I personally realised a blind spot of my own was that when when 
prepping for this, watching some of your earlier speeches, and you said that corporation tax is going to be lowered, and you said that this was predominantly gendered because most men own companies. So this itself is a very selective policy. I remember listening to that, and I was like, oh, yeah, of course it is. I never thought of that, which is something where I myself realized I was in the wrong. Um, but then the, the Labour Party has a higher percentage of female MPs, but has never had a female leader, whereas the Conservatives have had two, but have had two female prime ministers. Why the disparity there? More women, but less women in, lead in the leadership role. Yeah, I mean, I uh, sorry, this maybe sounds a little bit churlish, but Labour has had uh, two leaders, uh, Margaret Beckett and Harriet Harman, albeit they were interim leaders. But you know, I was certainly very, very proud of the approaches they took, and I thought they were they were fantastic in in those roles. Um, I mean, I, I think you know clearly we um, uh, we need to make sure that we have a strong representation of women as possible. But I also think that often the critical thing is whether those in positions of power adopt a you know pro women feminist approach to their decision making. And you know I've known Keir Starmer for many years, and he's somebody who's very much alert to these kinds of issues. Um, you know, he's acted very quickly to make sure that his uh, kind of senior team is gender balanced, um, but, you know, very alive to, to issues around um, uh, ethnicity as well, to disability status, also to social class. Um, so I, I think the, the critical thing is whether they're, whether they're supporters of that agenda. Um, you know, obviously, yes, want more women, but above all, you know, want more people who are, who are um, you know, feminists. That's, that's what's needed for change. Nice. Um, two questions to wrap up then. A lot of our listeners are undergrad economic students with exams over and a lot of time on their hands. Um, what are a couple of books that you think every undergrad econ student should read? Also, you mentioned earlier there was a couple of books on what you mentioned books on the Labour Party and modernization. Um, and I'd be interested to hear what those were too. Oh, blimey. Goodness me. Well, that's an enormous question. Well, take um, your time. We can edit this bit out. When, when the recording comes out, you'll have, you'll have had five like that. I think, um, so, I mean, I suppose, first of all, just before I answer that question, I would want to say that, um, you know, I, I appreciate for many people right now, it is quite a worrying time because, you know, lots of plans that people might have had and, you know, um, kind of career trajectories, you know, seem potentially quite different now. So I just want to kind of express, I guess, my kind of solidarity with people who are in that situation. Um, but yeah, it's a good time for doing some reading. That's absolutely right. I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I, I think that one interesting book that I really enjoyed, um, and I enjoy his writing generally, is from um, Nicholas Timmins, his, his big biography of the, the welfare state, The Five Giants. I think that's really, really interesting. And it shows how you can build... Um, how, how arguments for change can take a very long time to build, but then how they can eventually end up being put into place. Um, so I think that's um, a, a really interesting uh, book to look at. Um, and then in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of, of other economics books, I mean, I, I always find actually that, you know, comparative, I mean, this is maybe a bit cheeky of me because that was my academic field before. Um, but I think the more comparison we can do, the better and learn from other countries. And, you know, I'd say some of these questions about industrial strategy and, you know, this kind of kind of makes me look really ancient. But, um, you know, some of, some of the work done by, by people like Peter Hall, for example, Vivian Schmidt um, and others, 
Mark Thatcher, I would probably reference him because he was my supervisor when I was at LSE and is absolutely brilliant. But, you know, he's done a lot of interesting work around liberalisation. Um, you know, I, th I think the more that we can learn from other nations now, uh, you know, the, the, the better, really. Um, Especially now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite. Um, and then, oh, around the history of the Labour Party, I've got to be really careful here because quite a few of those books took very different approaches to um, kind of big ideological questions. Um, but I, I mean, I've, I've loved a lot of the, the biographies as well. You know, I think they've, they've been absolutely terrific, you know, really great page turners. So I'd, I kind of advocate um, uh, some of them, I suppose. Um, and then there, there have been other studies that have, yeah, that have adopted kind of really different methodological positions, you know, whether it's looking at how um, how party members influence policy, you know, how that works, um, or kind of the dynamics of different different leadership teams and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, there's a very there's very rich theme to look at and there's a lot of pretty good work in the LSE library, but I presume currently your students having to get yeah, 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 it's really difficult, difficult time. I know that at Oxford um, University, the librarians have been um, uh, kind of photocopying things and sending them, you know, and scanning them and stuff. But it's, you know, it's a big job. It's not the same as having the the text actually in your hands and being able to read it directly. So I do sympathise. I remember my last day of LSE walking through the library and seeing a friend with like, Indian import-export records from the 1930s, and she was just photographing all of them, being like, don't know when I can come back. I think that was a very thankless job. Okay, um, final question then, just to wrap up. Yeah. What gives you hope? Ooh, um, well, I think probably the, the, the biggest challenge that we, we all have to face up to in, in the medium to long term is that of the climate crisis. And while, um, you know, current circumstances are, are just so dreadful for so many people, the fact that um, kind of almost despite that, we've still seen a lot of work being done around, um, you know, not just national environments and, and the global environment, but local environments as well. You know, the kind of um, mutual work that's gone on you know, help for vulnerable people, but also really looking to do what we can to improve different places and to do that together. Um, and kind of ultimately also the work around, you know, promoting sustainable transport, more sustainable business. A lot of businesses really making the running on that, actually. Um, I find that that really exciting. That really does fill me with hope because, um, you know, that's the, the um, you know, obviously very worried about the current crisis, but you know, if people in my generation don't get a grip on the climate crisis and we don't take the action that's necessary, well, it's obviously already upon us. We're seeing record-breaking um, weather events currently in any case. Uh, uh, so we, we desperately need action. And it, it does feel like things may be changing now. We just need to make sure they definitely do. Annalise Dodds, thank you for your time. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening and we hope you tune in again next time.